Thank you for joining me for another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dian. Today, I am joined by Graham Lee. Graham, thank you so much for making time to come on the show. Not a problem at all. Thank you for having me, Leo. I'm super excited. I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself before we get started. Thank you. So uh, my name is Graham Lee. Uh, I'm a a senior research software engineer at the University of Oxford, which is just a fancy way of saying that I write computer programs for academics. Most of my career, I spent writing software in Objective-C, which is what we're going to uh, talk about um, on uh, the next uh, Unix workstations, then on Macs and uh, iPhone and iOS. I've done a little bit of Swift. Most of my work now happens to be TypeScript and Python and you know, and various sort of cross-platform technologies. But yeah, so uh, you know, I've been around the uh, sort of Apple ecosystem since um, Mac OS X, really, uh, and um, you know, and sort of I- enjoy uh, programming in that world. So I've got to say, um, do you still do the Dos Amigos uh, Twitch channel as Dos well? Dos Amigos, yeah, yeah. So um, that is uh, programming on the Commodore Amiga, the uh, nice. you know, famous computer from the 1990s. Now, I had one, or rather my dad had one in the 90s while uh, you know, while I was a teenager. Uh, I never did much programming on it, just sort of basic and things. And my friend Stephen Baker and I just went, well, would it be great to learn and just to see you know, what that was like and have a bit of fun? So that's what we did. That's awesome. So little tidbit, uh, Amiga 500 was my first computer. Oh, excellent. So I I had an Amiga. Yeah, I did very little, like, basic. I wasn't really into programming, uh, teenager, same same time. But I don't know if people know this, but Commodore did not do very well in North America in the 90s. So I was in a minority, and I really got burnt by that. And so I was like, my next computer is going to be the most software-compatible computer I can get. And I... That's when I went moved over to Windows. And I think, like, if I didn't have that experience with Amiga, I would have moved maybe to the Mac much earlier because I was like, yeah, I'm not going Apple and dealing with software compatibility issues. We are very lucky to live in a day and age when, like, like I know there's criticisms about Electron and, and all the all that stuff. But, man, to be able to run software on multiple platforms, it's it's a big blessing nowadays. Absolutely. But even more basic things like that, like the fact that, on a Mac, I can email someone a like JPEG image, and they can a open the email yeah, and b right. open the image file. Is yep. some you know is a battle that we've only won over the last you know sort of twenty five years or something. It's crazy just how incompatible and how like isolated Amiga users, and Mac users, or the, the all of the computers that came before that, the Trash eighty, the you know. Uh, Timex Sinclair stuff. You you were in your own little ecosystem in your own little world if you had any of those computers. Yeah, like I did. I think it was Claris Works on the Mac. I did some of that on my. I had a relative who had a Mac, and so I'd do like reports on that, and then I'd be like, "Oh crap, I have to print it up in Microsoft Word," and it's like right. I got to convert it to text. Yeah, we're we're so lucky these days. Yeah, we'll put a link to that Twitch channel. Thank you. Yeah, great. On our notes. But today we're going to cover Objective-C. And the reason I want to do that is I've heard a lot from Swift developers, especially who've started getting into it in like the last year or two, who've never had that big, deep exposure to Objective-C. And maybe you can tell me why learning Objective-C might be important for Swift developers in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, thank you. So uh, I think it's a good idea to start by dispelling a, a misconception. Like if you are listening to this podcast audio only, I do not have a massive grey beard. I'm not like you know some ancient <laughs> old uh, you know, relic saying, "Oh, back in my day, people knew how to do Objective C." And if you're watching, hopefully, hopefully they get the hint that you're a teenager in the '90s. They can kind yeah, of no, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and if you're watching on video, please don't like you know, email in with corrections about how grey I am. I don't want to hear it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we are in a a transitional phase. It might not feel like it because um, Swift was announced. WDC 2014 was it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yep. we're you know that's like seven. It's over seven years ago, but we're still in the middle of the transition. You know, uh, Swift is an application development layer, a set, you know, language and a set of tools on top of a lot of existing macOS 10 infrastructure, a lot of existing iOS infrastructure. Same is true on the watch and the TV. This infrastructure is by and large made out of Objective C. You know, I think that. The people you described, the uh, sort of you know, two years experience of Swift, are going to get much more out of learning more Swift and out of you know, um, engaging more with the, the frameworks that are available than they are out of learning Objective C. But your know, five years of experience, people who are starting to think, you know, how do I build these products into a suite? How do I better integrate with different features of the operating system? Are going to need to know how those features work and how the sort of design principles behind the various frameworks that Apple supply are put together. And the answer to that is contained in Objective-C because those frameworks were built by Objective-C experts in the Objective-C language. I want to thank the sponsor of today's episode, RevenueCat. RevenueCat makes it easy for app developers to build, analyze, and grow in-app purchases and subscriptions, whether on iOS, Android, or the web. There's no server code required. With a few lines of code, get in-app purchase infrastructure analytics and integrations without managing servers. Check out their YouTube channel, which is linked below, if you want more details on how to get started once you've signed up. They also have some great reporting tools that automate and be able to look at some of the analytics with your subscribers and subscriptions, customer lists, filters, and segments. If you're going to do anything with in-app purchases, then this is definitely the way to go. Check out RevenueCat.com for more details, or like I said, their YouTube channel in the link below. It's the go-to for getting in-app purchases set up in your app and being able to give you the time you need to focus on your app. Thank you, RevenueCat, for sponsoring today's episode. I've had a developer, like, you'll be a developer who's brought on a team on a much larger project that's like an iOS app, for instance, and it's been built on years of Objective-C code. And they're starting to hit a point with, especially like a lot of the new features that are just Swift strictly. Obviously, there's Swift UI, but there could be things like widgets or other features that are just pretty much their APIs only available in Swift. And they're like looking at the timeline and thinking, yeah, maybe we need to start migrating some of this Objective-C code over to Swift. And as they do that, they're still going to be using a lot of the older Objective-C code in their app because they're not, you know, you don't want to move everything whole hog in one big push to get uh, to your repo into the app store. So like you're going to do it piecemeal. So there might be some advantages to knowing like, oh, this is why, Objective-C does this, or this might be something you can improve in your Objective-C code so that it talks to your Swift code better. I think that's the other case that I've seen as well. Well, indeed. And even if you know, you're sort of at the beginning of that journey and you're like, we're not ready to migrate this stuff yet, you're going to want to fix a bug in it. Yep. You know, yeah. You're going to want to like 
make the objective c code that you've got continue to work until you've got the resources available to do that port and so you're going to have to learn objective c enough just to you know to fix those bugs it might be tiny things but you, someone's going to have to do them right yeah exactly rather than going whole hog and converting it all to swift today so what do you think you've you obviously have a lot of experience with objective c what do you think we've lost or forgotten in the transition from objective c if anything uh, so from a big picture, the the answer is luckily not much because, you know, Apple were the prime movers behind Objective-C. You know, they, they didn't create the language, but they, well, the potted history, this company called originally Productivity Products International, which is a rubbish name, so they changed to StepStone, created the Objective-C language uh, just as a a third-party programming language for various computers. It was available on the Mac. It was available on like PCs, on uh, various Unixes. And Next were by far their biggest customer. And at some point, uh, Next was so much their biggest customer that Next just bought all of the rights to Objective-C and then licensed it back to StepStone. So from that point onwards, Next and then Apple were basically the principal sort of maintainers, if you like, of the Objective-C language. And obviously are the principal maintainers and uh, designers. Uh, you know, we, there is a community process, but it's you know, managed by Apple. They are the principal uh, sort of directors, if you like, of the Swift programming language. So there is a, a strong continuity there. What has changed is perhaps a more interesting or a, a question with a more nuanced answer than what have we lost. And what has changed is that the Objective-C programming language is very much about dynamism. It's about runtime choice. It's about uh, you know uh, sort of loading bundles and querying objects while your code is running to see what they do, or even taking messages, which is basically requests to do things to uh, run methods that an object doesn't understand and then finding another object that does understand it at runtime and passing that on. Swift is very much about sort of static resolution of everything. It's about finding out everything that the program is going to do at compile time, answering all those questions and throwing up an error if it can't be answered. And so there is this, this change, but because all of these frameworks were built in the dynamic land of Objective-C, the way they work tends to you know, reflect that, particularly like sort of things like um, AppKit, uh, UIKit, core data, the really fundamental stuff depends a lot on this like dynamic nature, which is sort of hidden in Swift quite deliberately. Do you think that's an improvement? I think it's a different way to design things. Uh, you, know, you can answer your question both okay. ways. What you get, I mean, so like when... Swift was announced, it was described as Objective-C without the C. And I think that that is, you know, borderline trademark violation. <laughs> it is so much not Objective-C without the C, because Objective-C is C plus small talk. Right. So, and if you take C plus small talk minus and the C, it's minus small talk, C, it's not small talk. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, I maybe if we want to later, we can go into a bit more depth about what small talk <laughs> is, but it basically is this dynamic message sending uh, environment where you expect the end user and the programmer to be the same person. So there's, uh, you know, a lot of like runtime support for things like debugging and rewriting code, even when, uh, when you send a message, not just choosing where it runs. The 
idea behind Swift was really like there's a bunch of well the two things one is there's a bunch of problems that people get into if you leave results uh, and you leave error discovery until runtime most of which come down to it's not your computer that the error happens on if you're the developer it's your user's computer that the error happens right. on and they're the people who are you know who are like paying for you you know they're, they're paying right, your right. rent by buying your app or whatever. So you don't want to give them that experience. Uh, and so from that perspective, Swift is definitely better because it makes the developer resolve more problems before they get as far as the user. Now, it's not a silver bullet. It can't like make you design a good UX. It can't make you uh, build a feature that your customer actually wants, but it can help you avoid crashes. It can help you avoid some security problems. Well, no, I mean, I get where you're coming because you get with a static type language, it's all at compile time. You're going to know if there's some issue where it's like, like the classic one is nillability, right? Like where you don't know Mm. if something can be nil or not. And you have to like check it in the code as opposed to like Swift being like, no, there's a strong type the enum called optional. And that will give you that type information at compile time. And you'll know either way, basically. I mean, that's that's the biggest thing that, they added to Swift that kind of indicates that that big change in in philosophy. Yeah, so like the idea with nil and Objective C, and nil is even uh, sorry, Objective C is even uh, rare amongst other languages that are like it. You know, things like Ruby and Smalltalk. In this regard, is that if you send a message to nil, nothing happens. Right. Yeah, and so you don't get a runtime error; you just get right. no behavior, and you can design around that. But if you don't think to design around it then what you get is your code like apparently working but not doing anything <laughs> and it being very hard to understand right. why so oliver had a really good question about whether it makes sense to use objective c still outside of the mac ecosystem and it sounds like you've been doing some stuff in unix did you say yeah so there is another twitch stream i you know, can't get off the internet it seems <laughs> i run this second twitch stream called uh, objective c retain uh, which is doing objective c programming on linux using this framework called gnu step so the the history is next used the gcc compiler for objective c which meant because of the license of the GCC compiler, they had to release their Objective-C implementation as open source. So there has been, for longer than Apple has had uh, the Objective-C language, there has been Objective-C support for Windows, for Linux, for the BSDs. So there is this community who have a very, like, Cocoa-like, very compatible set of frameworks and tools. You can build a lot of open source Mac apps on Linux and just run them using these tools. It's not that popular. It's not as big as you know GNOME or KDE or you know. I mean, GNOME is the one that's uh, sort of default in Ubuntu and in Red Hat. So it's got a lot more uh, interest in it. But there is a community of people who are still doing this and uh, using it for server side applications as well. Oh wow! So server side Objective C. Yeah. Um. So Dell and Apple and Disney and a bunch of other companies back in the 90s used to use this web framework called yes, WebObject. I've heard of that. Which was Next. Yeah, it was Next um, Objective-C framework. Now, when Apple got it, they were very interested in Java, so they rewrote it all in Java. Uh, but 
the first versions were Objective-C. So there has been Objective-C on the server for the web way longer than there's been Swift, way longer than there's been Node.js, like longer than PHP, for yeah. that matter. And that's interesting that they moved it to Java. I'm sure they're probably moving it to Swift right now, eventually. Yeah, I mean, they've kind of abandoned it as a sort of public right, right. thing and I think trying to rewrite stuff away from it. And um, and that's another interesting point about the sort of community involvement in Swift is it other companies like IBM and Google are doing a lot of the server-side Swift work uh, that Apple are sort of, you know, are leaving open because it's not a, a space they really play in. Right, much. right, yeah. So, I don't know, did we answer Oliver's question? Does it make sense to use Objective-C outside of the Mac ecosystem, besides being like a hobbyist? Right, yeah, I was going to say, only if you like using Objective-C. If you don't, there's no, you're never going to find a business case for it. How about just using Objective-C in general, do you think, like, in the Mac ecosystem, does it make sense? Because, like we've said, like, there's a lot of work done, so that way you can still do stuff in Swift, essentially, uh, to talk to Objective-C APIs. So why would you want to still write in Objective-C in any any app? I mean, you know, I'll be brutally honest. The uh, the number one reason is because you have some existing investment and it's easier to support it than it is yeah. to rewrite. Okay. But, you know, I think this came up on your episode on Advanced Swift not that long ago. Right, with Shy. Yeah, exactly. That it's a lot easier to distribute frameworks in a number of use cases if you're using Objective-C to write the framework than it is Swift. And everything that I say is caveated with the idea that I'm speaking at this moment, right? You know, in five years' time, we'll be having discussions about, you know, whatever is coming after uh, Swift or, like, you know, Swift version 12, and we'll be saying, uh, you know, do you remember all those, like, dinosaurs who used Objective-C? But and Swift Package Manager will have moved on by another right. five years, and it will cover a lot more of this ground. But right now, like um, you know, sort of portable framework code that works on each of the platforms Apple supplies is very easy to do in Objective C. Right, like uh, uh, binaries are like fairly recent. Mm, C yeah, frameworks yeah. are fairly recent, so it's like it's it's close. Like, we're getting closer and closer to where Swift packages will support that. But yeah, uh, I could see exactly. I, yeah, so. I mean, we kind of answered what are the drawbacks. Maybe, maybe you can address some approaches that you you've seen with transitioning to Swift in your application. Yeah, I mean, the good news is that we're at the point in the transition where doing that is much easier than it it used to be. Like, uh, we've now got um, a lot of features that have been added to Objective C in order to enable exposing APIs in Swift. And I think that that is always the easiest way to do this. Actually, I'm going to say step zero is write a bunch of tests. Like, you know, let's come back to this conversation. You know, pause your podcast player right now, go and make sure you have decent test coverage and don't try to migrate any code until you're confident that you have encapsulated its behavior in tests. Now that you're back and you've got all those tests. Uh, have you written those tests in Swift or Objective-C? Uh, probably in Swift, okay, because okay. where we're going is migrating this thing forward. So I've got my Objective-C framework that is exposed through, you know, bridge to Swift, and I've written my tests in Swift. That is absolutely a great bedrock on which to do any porting, because you rewrite everything in Swift and you run the same tests. What you may find is that some of the Objective-C APIs don't work particularly well. Like you've got 
optionals where you know that the thing shouldn't be optional. And so you use the nullability keywords in Objective-C to tell Swift that these extra constraints exist and it can rely on them. You've got collections like sets or arrays that saying that they are an array of any and you need to use the Objective-C generics to tell it that it's an array of strings or an array of numbers or whatever. And then yeah, and then it becomes easier to use in Swift and then you do the port to Swift. So I think step zero is tests. Let the tests tell you where your Objective-C API is not bridged very well and build the bridge so that you've got a better API and then rewrite in Swift once you have the API you want and the behavior that you know you're not going to break. And I like I like that you mentioned the nullability and uh, is it generics? Would you call it generics? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, those are the two big things that I've I've worked on with improving my Objective C code. So like it's actually a lot better. I kind of do like that Xcode is a little bit of a pain in the butt when it tells you like, oh, you you did this thing in nullability. Okay, now you have to do all the like fifty other properties. So now you have to add mm. nullability flags to it. Um, I, I like that, and that goes back to this. Yeah, that goes back to this uh, idea we were talking about where the goal of Swift is to tell you everything that's wrong when you compile the code, not to tell your customer everything that's wrong when they run the code. You're still going to have code that is going to consume the Swift from Objective-C. In that case, what are some things you need to do in your Swift code to improve that communication uh, in the other direction, so to speak? I've actually never done that, so I don't have an answer to that one. Okay, yeah. I mean, so I know that there's obviously things you're going to, like, you'll have Swift types that just won't work in Objective-C, no matter if you put put the attribute into it or not. So I know that like, that's something you have to care about. And yeah, you have to care about whether you you are extending, like, Objective-C right, objects. Right, right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've I've definitely run into that before. That was the thing. And then just, like, mm. what, I'll, what I might do is I'll write the type in strict Swift, like assuming that in the future there won't be an Objective-C type that will talk to it. Right. And then I might encapsulate that in like an Objective-C friendly type so that way it can be consumed. In a, yeah. And there is a good talk from, I think, last year's WWDC. Brent did a talk on bridging Objective-C okay. to Swift, which goes into these. And then there's like some weird edge cases, like if you've got a, a method in Objective-C that does the like returns a type that has an error, NS error pointer pointer right. at the other end, but doesn't but doesn't work for, for the like, try catch stuff. throws and yeah. try catch. You can you can mark that as like this is a you know, it's basically saying this, this is a badly designed API and then Swift goes, right, well I'm not going to bridge that into a try catch uh, thing. I'm going to give you the the raw signature. And there's the um refined for Swift for if you've got an API that is basically not very nice even after it has been bridged to swift you can say i'm going to yeah. hide this make something in swift that like that looks better but that calls my method uh, it's privately using an underscore underscore prefix you know what's a question that i have i haven't tried this yet how does a sync and a wait work in objective c I assume those methods are hidden, right? Yeah, um, so Objective-C just doesn't have an async and await. Um, right, but I'm wondering if, like, behind the scenes, it turns it into, like, a like a, like a a block parameter or something. I, yeah, I'm sure in, internally it's probably using blocks. Right, dispatch, right. But, yeah, I haven't dug in. Yeah. 
but that would probably be another example of something you'd have to bridge over to, to Objective-C. One question that we had is how can old Objective-C code be used in Swift packages? So actually sort of integrated into the packages? Yeah. So let's say you have a bunch of old Objective-C code and you want to create it. You want to make it available in a Swift package. How would you even do that? Uh, I don't know. I haven't tried. But, I mean, you can just provide uh, get Objective-C code bridged into Swift in a single project using a bridging header. Okay. So if the Swift if the project for a Swift package contains Swift and Objective-C and a bridging header, then it should just like build as a Swift package and work in the Okay. In the yeah, that makes project. sense. Besides, so J- Jacob had a couple of questions. We'll cover the tough one first. Uh, where did all your great long hair go that he remembers from your NS conference <laughs> days? Nice. Okay, yes. So I, I did have hair that was back down to the middle of my back. I am not yet thinning but certainly receding so you know um like the little bit of inside baseball i'm going to be 40 in about a month um and i thought it was congratulations uh thank you yeah i made it this far hopefully this is like you know half to one third of the way through the journey uh but i decided that i needed to sort of take control of this before it became obvious that i was um you know trying to cover up for anything (laughs) i've uh yeah, I I, uh, I reached that milestone a couple of months ago, and uh, yeah, I'm I've given up on on the fight about hair. So yeah, 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 I, I'm doing a rearguard action, like a tactical <laughs> withdrawal. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So he did have another question. That's a little bit easier, probably. Well, we'll see. If he have if he had any experience with C libraries through Objective C or not, any easy migration path to using them from Swift. So this has this has always been an issue uh, with Objective C plus plus. So you know, uh, potted summary: Objective C has very good on, on interoperability with Agreed. C plus yes. plus. Like you can just write C plus plus code inside an Objective C method. You can just write Objective C code inside a C plus plus method. You're limited to you know, things like you can't subclass the C++ class from Objective-C or yeah. vice versa. There's very little you can't do, which is both a blessing and a curse. Yeah, it makes it very easy to write very difficult to understand interfaces because you've got C++ types and Objective-C types uh, you know, all, all sprinkled within each other. The thing to do, it, like whatever your context is, but it works particularly well for Swift, is to um, encapsulate all of the C++ inside Objective-C. You know, so I've done this for like fundamental data types. I had to write for a couple of different projects. And it made sense to write an NS dictionary-like object that just used a different data structure because the um, you know the data uh, made sense in uh, in this other structure. So I wrote the low-level data structure in C++, and then it's um, you know templated. It's uh, generic it's you know it's all compiled so it's fairly Mm -hmm. quick and then provided an objective c interface that doesn't expose any of those types it just exposes objective c methods and primitive types now if you do that then what you're exposing to swift is an objective c class and swift has no knowledge of like what you wrote it in um and so that makes it that makes just work the 
you know, the thing that will trip you up and you won't be able to do is if you're like trying to return, you know, STD strings or, um, you know, the std vectors or something uh from your your from your bridge yeah app. i've done this too with i have uh, the icon builder app speculate um uses cairo and our svg behind the scenes and so with that one i ended up finding it a lot easier to just write the interface in objective c and then like that's the bridge between the swift code and 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 the linux libraries um and that that like worked out much better. There's some weird stuff with exceptions and error handling, but like, hmm. yeah, it's, it's a lot easier to go that route. Hopefully in the future, near future, we'll get better C plus plus interop. I don't, I don't know. Do you know where it is right now in Swift? No idea at all. I mean, it doesn't appear to be sort of a sort of high pride thing. I guess like there's not that much Apple API that is public and is in C plus plus for them to, uh, you know, consider it a priority maybe. Hey folks, I don't know if you've been thinking about starting a new podcast, but now's the time to do it. If you're looking for suggestions, I highly recommend the host of this show, Transistor FM. Transistor FM has been a great host for Empower apps. They have all sorts of great features like in-depth analytics, automatic distribution to Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, private podcasts for your special members, and all sorts of other great features. You can even look at their awesome portfolio of great customers like the NHL's Vegas Golden Knights, Indie Hackers, IBM, U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs, Podia, Unbox Therapy, and more. If you have any interest in starting a podcast and playing around with it, I highly recommend checking out the link in the show notes below. Give Transistor a try and get going on that podcast you've always wanted to start. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of the show. You did recently write uh, a really good blog post about Objective-C and cross-platform tools. I don't know. The question that I had was, like, what are some cross-platform tools for keeping Objective-C alive? So you talked about GNU Step, right? Was that the one? GNU Step, what else is yeah. there right now? Uh, so, I mean, like, GNU Step has sort of a foundation library, an app kit, a bits of UI kit, and, you know, a lot of uh, other libraries doing sort of Mac style applications. Um, but there is, there was a, a startup called App Portable who started writing a, U, a UI kit implementation and sort of Cocoa Touch things so that you could write uh, Objective-C apps and run them on Android. And some of their code was open source as well. And the main sort of mindset competitor to Canoe Step was this MIT license project called the Cocotron. Uh, which was designed for cross-compilation. So you take your Xcode project, you change the build rules to compile with its compiler instead of with Apple's compiler, and then you hit build and you get a Linux app, or you hit build and you get a Windows app. And there's also another one called OFW, I think, uh, Objective-C Framework, which is well cross-platform. It doesn't use any of the same sort of types or structures as you know uh, as apple so it's got like its own string type its own object type its own array type and so on but i mean that works on the amiga uh, as well as on you know a bunch of other modern things um and then nat muller has a company muller kyber kinetic and he has a, his own objective c runtime library his own uh, sort of fork of clang that supports this runtime uh, library and his own um framework so there's there's like three or four sort of 
major projects at the fundamental level. And then there's a lot of open source Objective-C on top of that because the language was around for so long and so many people were writing apps in it. Right. That's cool. We'll put links in the show notes to some of that stuff. That's awesome. Did you have anything else you wanted to mention about Objective-C for Swift developers? Uh, yeah, I think that you know, going back to an idea I talked about at the top of the show, there's obviously going to be less impetus to learn Objective-C as time goes on. That you know, Apple are going to start writing uh, sort of Swift uh, Swift libraries for ideas like data management, so you don't have to use core data anymore. You use whatever they call it, like, uh, you know, um, Swift data, probably. Uh, you know, and, and so you'll be able to get a lot further before you hit this. Uh, and now you need to really understand what Objective C is doing before you get any uh, before you get any further. But we are not there yet. Uh, you know, Swift UI, for example, is not a UI framework in Swift. Swift UI is a a domain specific language for constructing Objective C uh, UIs using Swift. Uh, and so you don't get far in Swift UI before you hit the I need to use AppKit or UIKit. Uh, and you don't get far in using AppKit or UIKit before you start asking questions like, what is the target action um, you know, design pattern? Like, why are you know, why am I telling this thing what method to run? And understanding that means understanding the design principles behind Objective C, even if not necessarily like becoming an expert at Objective C coding per se. What are you know? That's something maybe we can we can talk about a little bit more. Is like what are some of the design principles as far as like target action blocks, delegate patterns, things like that that Swift folks aren't going to be super accustomed to, I guess. So the fundamental idea behind all of this is um, a thing that Alan Kay, who is one of the um, creators of the Smalltalk programming language called dynamic late binding or even extreme late binding of all things so you don't choose what function to run uh, when you're compiling your code you uh, you use information that is available at runtime to decide what function you're going to run and that's like weirdly meta you're running a function to decide what function to run and why why do they decide to go that route back back in the old days <laughs> so the benefit you get from that is extreme flexibility now small talk was designed as i said earlier for the developer and the user to be the same person so if i had like a bunch of code that i'd written for uh, an application that's running on my computer like let's say that i've written a, a tool for automatically managing my expenses and now i want a tool for automatically uh, managing my budget well you know, obviously, a lot of that is going to be transferable because I've got uh, you know views for um, displaying like graphs about my finances. I've got forms for capturing data about my transactions. I've maybe got uh, currency conversion utilities, foundational objects that represent money as a like, in decimal form rather than as a floating point, and so on. And I can take all of that across. And what I can do is say, right, this form is plugged into that calculator in the runtime of my um, uh, of my code. Now, Objective-C was never particularly used in that context. Objective-C was used as a tool for building applications by you. Know, yeah, this almost sounds like a scripting language for 
like developers slash users who just want to automate stuff in a way. Yeah, but it's a combination of that and a, you know, a albeit interpreted, but compiled to bytecode okay. interpreted language. So you know what? Im- imagine that that like you've you're running your code and you encounter a bug and um, it stops in the debugger in like Swift. That's like this kind of you know weird little teletype style LLDB uh, thing. You've got to understand a load of you know commands to get it to work, or like rely on Xcode being available in uh, in Smalltalk. That is. You know, your debugger is your like graphical programming environment. So you can, you know, if your window has crashed into debugger, you can still interact with the window. You can type code that changes your live application, even though it is right. crashed. You can correct the code and hit continue, and then, or, or you can like correct the code and then hit start again, and it will go back up to the top of the method wow. and and run the fixed version instead of the broken version. This is a completely different way of working than like modern developers are used to at all. Now, Objective C sort of took those ideas and made use of them, even though it was in this kind of compile apps and then shipped them off to uh, customers. So, like Interface Builder, one of the reasons that Swift UI took so long to get like live previews is that it is having to do a lot more in order to like show that preview than interface builder is and that's because of this dynamic idea like what you when you build your like, ui in interface builder you drag a button onto a window as literally a window object as in an ns window or a ui window in in app kit in ui kit and it's literally an ns button or a ui button it is an instance of that thing you're when you're like connecting the target to the source and you're connecting the action and you're like hooking up all these outlets and everything you are literally just setting the instance variables of these objects and you're saying this thing needs to run this method when uh, when this button is pressed and all of that gets saved into a file like an xml file these days and it just gets loaded up and those objects recreated in the running application which means the interface builder can of course run a live demonstration of your app because it's got the live objects. It's got these windows and these buttons. You can press them. You can interact with them. With SwiftUI, because Swift's paradigm is dot all the I's, cross all the T's, get everything correct in the compiler, you have to have a fast enough computer to compile and type check uh, this thing and integrate it into some like you know, in- embedded like hosting environment and then run all of that before you can get to the point where you can you know, show this preview. Now, the fact is we've got really fast computers on our desks now, and so that is feasible. Uh, that wasn't feasible. And that's that's what it seems like is the big difference between the old days and the new days. I could see how, like, back in the 80s, or I would assume 80s, 90s, right, like, it would just take a long time to recompile the app and then test it out. Whereas, like, nowadays, it's like there's no need to, like, dynamically change the code as you're you're debugging it. So I guess, it, like, that kind of makes a lot more sense. Yeah, so, um, you know, the, that's why you can have a much more rigorous type system, for example, in Swift. And you can have all these ideas of, like, you know, generic types and extension types. And you know, there's probably other type types that I can't remember off the top of my head. Because you know, what you're doing there is you're writing in the type structure you're writing proofs about the correctness of 
the program. And they're very complicated. They're like very difficult mathematical expressions. But now we've got computers fast enough that they can like you know, get to the end result in reasonable time and say, yes, this you know this code you have written is consistent with this constraint you have written about the code. Yeah, so that makes a lot. Of, so that's kind of why we have actions and targets and delegates and things like that. Yeah, it's basically saying, don't ask me what I'm doing yet because it's cheaper for, for you to ask me later, or more fl- and more flexible right, right. to ask me later. So you you mentioned you're doing a lot of TypeScript. Do you see that there's like a big trend because TypeScript kind of is doing what Swift is doing, but for JavaScript, where it's like trying to make JavaScript a lot more strict, right? static static typed do you see like there's a big push right now for more of that as opposed to like the dynamic typing that you might see in php and javascript and languages like that so yes i I see that there is a a bigger and growing community around that and even in python uh which is you know one of the most uh perhaps liberally typed is the phrase to use um rather than dynamic or static or whatever but yes you know python is one of the most freely type things where you just like leave your program to run and it works out whether it can or not there is a move to at least annotate methods to make it easier to work out in an ide or in an editor what is going on even if that information isn't actually used by a correctness check or by a you know a type checking phase in the compile process That isn't to say that everybody is doing that. I mean, I've worked in JavaScript startups that were very opposed to the idea of um, TypeScript or of equivalent tools because they can make it uh, sort of harder to express certain ideas. And particularly like JavaScript comes from a very, very sort of laissez-faire approach to computing. You, know, you can just say, right, these three properties on this object are strings, and this one is a function that returns a function that returns a number. And you know, it be- and then you're allowed to index that thing. Well, writing the index signature in TypeScript for that is a, you know, is a complex task. And so some people would prefer not to do it. The way I like to think about it is that dynamic languages uh, or design ideas, you know, program design ideas, like the ones that are used in JavaScript for Objective-C or Python, allow you to write a whole lot of programs of which most are wrong uh, and, like, and and a few are, are correct. The, the static typing design of like Swift or of TypeScript or of C++ for that matter allows you to write a much smaller collection of programs of which most are still wrong. <laughs> But they are not wrong in the same ways that a lot of the JavaScript or Objective-C programs would be wrong. But they also stop you writing some of the correct programs. Now, the question is, does that really matter? And the answer is probably no, because you can still get a correct program, where, you know, even in that constrained way of working. Right, right. Which do you prefer? I prefer the uh, dynamic approach. And the the reason is there are times when the constraint that is imposed by the static approach isn't consistent with what I'm trying to do. Now, the reason I'm trying to do it is because I grew up in that dynamic approach. Uh, and so, you know, this is perhaps a, like, Graham, why are you so old question rather than a, like, is this one better than that one? When you say grew up, what do you mean exactly? Grew up at what languages? The, I mean, the, the experiences that I gained as a uh, programmer, 
you know, in sort of the formative years of my career were in things like Objective C and Perl and Python, and then you know later um, sort of Ruby as well. I absolutely agree with you because I'm like in the opposite boat. Like I think. I did a lot, like, I think the first language I really liked doing was C-sharp, and, like, that's statically typed. And PHP was okay. Like, it's, like, I, I appreciate the speed that you can develop in those kind of dynamic languages, but, like, I prefer the, I'm kind of, I think I prefer the correctness of static type languages. So, like, then when I got into iOS development doing Objective-C, it's like, okay, like, I appreciate what, what those languages do, and I understand where they're coming from. But, like, my gut reaction is, like you said, like, where I grew up in, and that's more of the static-typed languages. Yeah, sure. And, like, again, going back to what I said about computers getting faster, uh, you know, the things like TypeScript and Swift, uh, Swift UI previews, it's fast enough that you can watch the code, and as soon as someone saves a change to the file, you can go, oh, well, the file's changed. I'll recompile it, regenerate the preview, and it, they won't even notice. It will just, like, be running the updated version. So those benefits we were getting from the dynamic approach, you now can get, or rather you can now fake just by being able to replace a running program in a compiled and type-checked code so quickly. But you can't fake the design changes. So uh, let's say, for example, that I've got some application that, that... communicates with the database um, because it's you know it, it's storing some data and you know the typical uh, example is like an hr database so i've got you know lists of employees uh, names and salaries and whatever now in my tests i've just got in memory records of employees names salaries so it's all like just you know plain objects with strings and numbers and plain old objective c objects in my application i've got a core data database because that's what i'm doing for my local cache and it's using your managed objects which all have those properties on and in my application i also have a thing that is talking to a web service but it's talking to a web service that uses restful ideas so i can still have separate entities with name names and salaries and whatever and in Swift, I have to define a protocol that you know, that all of these things have, and I have to extend all of these things to, to to conform to that protocol before the compiler will let me ask the the web service for its salary, the cache or like core data for its salary, and the test for its salary. But in a uh, in like a more dynamic language, I just say, right. I know that this thing has a salary. Like you know, we're now trusting the programmer, not the not the computer. You don't have to uh, scaffold all the codable types. Exactly, there's yeah. a whole lot less boilerplate. We talked to um, uh, Ellen Shapiro, and she runs a lot of the stuff for GraphQL, and that to me is like the classic example of where like static type languages really like like hit the hit the uh, hit the bricks. Right, like it's like. If you don't know, like it, it, with GraphQL, obviously your your queries are dynamic, and your type your data you get back is dynamic, and it's really difficult to get that in Swift, and and, and to be able to pull that dynamic data because you don't know you don't know what the structure is going to be. The structure could be anything, depending on your query. And I think GraphQL is a classic example of of where Swift kind of runs into difficulties. Yeah, and it's a you know it's a, an ironic you know, thing that you brought up that episode because you were talking to Ellen about Doxy, yeah. and 
the 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 fact is, in a dynamic world, you have to rely much more on documentation and on communicating yes. intent to the program. In linters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have to you have to say you know you put more trust into the programmer. You make them decide that their program is correct. You don't have this like you know th- this collection of machinery that is doing it for them. Yeah. Before we close out, I wanted to ask: Is there anything in particular you're studying right now in your PhD program? Yeah, so I've uh, I'm like at the beginning of the second year of a PhD in um, software engineering, which means that I know exactly what my question is, and I've still got no idea how to answer it. But I've got an idea how to answer it, but not what the answer is going to be. So I, I mentioned when uh, when when you introduced me that I'm uh, a research software engineer, which is a fairly new development in universities. Like, you know, university research has depended on computers for a long time, and they've never really paid anyone to be an expert at doing that. They've always just like, oh, got, okay, you know, got PhD sense. students, or they've got you know, like um, uh, you know, sort of untenured researchers to maintain this thing and then hand it over to the next person. But they've never learned software engineering principles because they've always been like physicists or chemists or you know, right. geophysicists right. or whatever. So. There is this like question at the moment of should there be a sort of profession of research software engineering? What would it look like? How do these people sort of communicate their skills, uncover best practice? Should we be doing in academia the same thing that say agile teams working in a startup company are doing? Or is the context so different that we actually need different methods and different approaches? And my question is basically all of that, which yeah. means it's really a social science PhD, but hidden in a computer science department. That's that's very interesting. I understand where you're coming from too, because like, and then the budgeting is different with universities exactly. as opposed to startups as opposed to enterprise. So yeah, yeah, we'll have to have you back on again to to tell us the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> it will be a long show if it you know, if I'm reading out my thesis. well thank you so much graham for coming on the show it was great where can people find you online okay so uh the easiest thing is twitter uh i'm i was legi because i used to be i am legi and then i quit twitter and someone else like you know some spammer got the name so i was legi i-w-a-s-l-e-e-g awesome and we'll have links to your podcasts uh streams and blog posts and stuff like that uh in the show notes as well thank you so much for coming on thank you very much Leo. uh you can find me on twitter at leo g dion my company is bright digit please uh post a review and wherever you're listening and if you could like and subscribe if you're watching this on youtube thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to talking to you again bye